you are listening to Padded Cell Podcast, a conversation around mental health. I'm your host, Anthony Oluwach. Hello and welcome to this episode of Padded Cell. I'm Anthony Oluwach. According to the World Health Organization, the harmful use of alcohol results in 3.3 million deaths each year. 31 million people have drug use disorders and almost 11 million people inject drugs. Now these are scary statistics and as my guest Dr. Rob Kelly says, we are all affected in one way or another by addiction. Dr. Kelly is a world-renowned addiction consultant who believes in treating the problem of addiction, not the symptoms. Today, he inspires, educates, and changes lives with his amazing gripping story of success to failure to success. Here is an excerpt from his book, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. I'll never forget what she said as she was leaving with my daughters. I will always love you, Rob, but you're not killing me and you're not killing our children. It was, of course, the wisest thing she could do, but it triggered something deep inside me. I could not believe that she thought she could just walk out the door with my children. I called my lawyer and offered him an extortionate amount of money to get my children back within 24 hours. He delivered them back to me the next day and I placed them in front of the television and that's the last thing I remember before I hear banging on my front door days later. I could hear children crying in the background and I knew I'd come out of a drunken blackout once again. I fought the mental fog to make sense of my surroundings and get my bearings. I opened my eyes and as the room started to come into focus through the blur, I saw my two small children sitting on the floor. They were so young and both were crying and I knew I was in big trouble and had done something once again that was unforgivable. My children were crying because they had not been fed for a couple of days. Empty bottles of vodka and beer were strewn across the floor as I struggled to sit up and tell my children that it would be okay. The house looked like a bomb had gone off, a place you would never frequent if you were sane. Barely conscious or thinking straight yet, I had bang, bang, bang. It was the police at the door. The neighbors had called them and reported that I was unconscious from drinking with my young children present. I stumbled to the door in full knowledge that I had gone on yet another bender with my children in my sole care. I saw the disgust on their mother's face as she stood there with the authorities, knowing quite well that I was not capable of caring for myself, not so less my children. They snatched the crying children and handed me a piece of paper which said two words that have been permanently branded into my brain and have haunted my nightmares since. Unfit father. As the authorities trundled down the path with my children, Charlotte, my eldest, turned to me and says, Daddy, Daddy, please don't go. A few steps further, she turned and says, Daddy, Daddy, please get better. Then in one final turn, the last pleading words uttered by my beautiful innocent child were, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. After closing the door, my response was to grab another beer from the refrigerator. Within weeks, I was barred entry from the house we shared and my world crumbled around me. My name is Dr. Rob Kelly. I'm an addiction doctor. I live in San Antonio, Texas. But as you can tell from my accent, guys, I'm from Manchester in the United Kingdom. 
and I've been over here for about 14 years. Well, I, I came to uh, Dallas, Texas for two weeks only, and I came to work with a church in Plano, which is a suburb just outside Dallas, Texas, uh, for two weeks with a uh, youth ministry. So in an, it was in an affluent area, and they found out that the youth ministry, the teens in the church, were having a problem with crack cocaine and that it was rife and that they needed someone to spend some time with the ministry explaining and educating about the drug. And that's where I came in. I, mean, I came over to DFW, which is uh, Dallas Airport, and as soon as I stepped off at the plane at DFW Airport, I knew that this was going to be my new home. I don't know how or why, but I just knew it was going to be my new home. Yeah, didn't you like it when you when you get to a place and you just know this is this is it. This is this is absolutely it. Yeah, it was surprising, really, especially because I mean I was looking forward to coming to America. I'd never been before, but just the fact that I knew that this was it for me. It was just, it was peace. It was, it was just amazing. Now, uh, you, you mentioned that you, uh, you went there to, to work with uh, teens dealing with crack cocaine. You, you work on addiction. Tell me, uh, what, what has been your history with addiction? Uh, I'm a chronic alcoholic of the hopeless variety, which means that once I start drinking, it's almost impossible for me to stop. I also had a problem with drugs as well. So it wasn't just alcohol, it was drugs as well. And uh, I decided that if I ever got well, I'd spend the rest of my life working with people who had my affliction. And that's what I've done. I mean, I've, I've, I've suffered with alcoholism all of my life. And I still suffer today. I just, I just don't drink today, which, is, which doesn't actually set off the disease in my brain. Because it's not the alcohol that's the problem. It's the mm. way I think about the alcohol that's the problem. So you wrote a book. Can you tell us a little bit about it? The book is entitled Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. And it was the last thing my daughter said to me 20-something years ago because I've not seen her since. And it's a book about my, my life. It's a book about alcoholism. It's a book about healing families. And it's a book about the distraught and the, the stuff that nobody really wants to talk about of how desperate the alcoholic gets and that it's not his fault and that it is a disease and that there isn't no cure, <clears throat> but there is a daily reprieve. So it does have a happy ending, but it's kind of my journey from a middle-class family to the streets back to self-made millionaire. So it's, it's a pretty, it's, it's like a, a roller coaster ride, if you will, but it's good for the alcoholic and addict. It's good for loved ones. It's good for families and the best thing in the world, and I love saying this, is every penny, like everything that, that people buy from the book, not just mm -hmm. the profits, but all the proceeds go back into communities to people who struggle with alcohol and drug addiction. Oh, brilliant. Uh, I have read the book. I have actually, I, I have read uh, an excerpt of the book in the beginning of this podcast. Um, and, and I really, I absolutely enjoyed going through the journey with you. Just give us a, a little bit of a of, of what your journey was. Well, the alcoholism was with me the first time I took a drink at the age of nine. So I took that drink and it set the alcoholic brain off, which is you can't drink yourself into becoming an alcoholic, guys. I want to, I want to tell you that now. You're born mm. with that. Drug addiction is something slightly different, too complicated to get into, but the alcoholic brain. So I'm born this way and it was just a matter of time. I didn't really stand a chance because of lack of knowledge 
So the, the more the more I succeeded, the more alcoholism was rife until it finally took me almost to the gates of hell. It's, a, it's a, only on Amazon. So if anybody wants to buy it, just go on Amazon and click it. And then don't forget to email me. I think the email's in the book or it's online. Uh, right. to tell what you think about it because I'm really, really – it's my first book, and, and I never really meant to write a book. It was just that mm. people were always saying to me, you've got to write the book, you've got to write a book. You, And I'm like, well, I'm not too sure about this. But, uh, yeah, so I did it. So any feedback is always amazing because I've amazed myself. And it's only because of my wife that it's actually out in print because I kept giving my wife like pieces of paper from, you know, memories back in 20 years ago and 50 years ago. And she put it all together and edited it and proofread it and, and put it into print. It was phenomenal. Now, uh, let, let, let's talk about you. Now, you told us about what what was in the book. I, I want to know what what it is that makes you tick. I have a yearn for life that's phenomenal because of what I've been through. So not people say that the alcoholism as a whole is a downer. Alcohol is an affliction. Alcoholism is a terrible thing. You know, it is while you're suffering from the disease and in active addiction or alcoholism. But I've turned it around. I, I look at every single thing as a positive rather than a negative. So rather than have a disease, I like to think I have a superpower. And what I mean by that is I look at the world differently and millions of people just like me who's been through the, the, the stuff I've been through. It's like a lot of fear is taken out of situations that the normal person would be fearful of because when you spend 14 months living on the streets, as in mm. sleeping in bus shelters and begging for money, when you come out of that and only 3% of people where I live come out of that, 97% of people die on the streets. So I was one of the lucky ones. Life kind of takes on a new meaning. And it's like a couple of years ago, I signed a, an office, a, a rental for an office, half a floor for like almost a million dollars. And people thought I'd gone insane. Like, you must be crazy. They've got you for a million dollars. It was like a 20 year deal. And I'm like, mm -hmm. what's the worst can happen? And they're going, well, you know, they could, they could take the office away. Really? That's it. I mean, this is the guy that died twice on the streets. My heart stopped and they had to bring me back. And you're worried about the office? That doesn't worry me. Finances don't worry me. Lack thereof sometimes does, but I can make decisions where other people find it difficult to make because one of the biggest things I've found in today's world is a lot of people make practical decisions based on fear. You know, they mm. think it's a sensible way, but they don't really chase the true dream because they're scared and they want to play it safe. So rather than start their own business, that's something they're really good. They're going to work for somebody else you know, and make them rich and, and get frustrated with them because it's a safer bet to work for somebody else. Well, I don't have that problem. You know, I, I'm going to try everything it, that's possible in my life, everything. Great. And the fact that you got to the point where you're going to try everything that's possible in your life is absolutely brilliant. I'm going to ask you just for the sake of the people who are listening, how did you get there? How did you get to that point where you think, you know, you got to a point where you lost everything. You lost, um, you lost your family. You lost your home. You, uh, in the book, you talk about um, being thrown out of your mother's house and your sister's house. How did you get to that point? I think it was just, you know, I'd lost my mind. And that's what uh, deep alcoholism is all about, is that my definition of insanity is not being able to see my own truth. And I couldn't see 
how desperate I was. I couldn't see how much damage I was doing to everybody around me because a lot of alcoholics will, will misquote and say, hey, well, I, it's not damaging anybody else. I'm just harming myself. If I drink myself to death, that's mm. not true. Now, you know, I, my disease is very contagious. It infects everybody around me in ways that no other disease does. So you get sick, but you get sick spiritually and mentally. So my mom always said to me, I had to watch you slowly kill yourself on a daily basis, and I couldn't do anything about it because you didn't want to do anything about it. And I didn't. You know, I was, I'd, I'd come to the fact in my mind that I was going to die of alcoholism out on the streets, on a back street somewhere in the rain and cold, and nobody would miss me. And that was, I just assigned myself the fact that that was going to happen. And it was simple as that because I couldn't live with alcohol and I couldn't live without it. My body just couldn't exist. So the mind was was very, very affected. You know, suicide, suicidal thoughts, ideations was a daily occurrence with me. I think right. I tried six or seven times uh, with disaster, but two occasions did actually work and they brought me back. I was very annoyed at that, that they brought me back to life at the time. Was this uh, the, the two times that you mentioned you almost died on the streets? Yes, I was on the streets and it was a back, a, a dirty back street, smelly, stinky, wet, horrible. It was just very, very sad. And uh, I just, I hope I never go back to that ever again as long as I live. Suicide is one of those things that anyone going through a mental health issue has has thought about, has probably done. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to something that you mentioned about insecurity about things, insecurity about not having, not having what you have now, insecurity about losing stuff. Is it something that you go through a lot? It is, you know, I mean, at the back of my mind, I'm always afraid of losing everything and end up homeless. Now, my financial advisors and my wife tell me that's almost impossible. But I will still worry about it on a daily basis. But the thing is, as well, is I have a lot of material things around me. I drive a very expensive car, live in a very expensive house, wear very expensive watches, shoes, clothes. You know, but if I lost them tomorrow, I wouldn't be bothered as long as I didn't end up on the streets. So could I go, could I go from a five-bedroom uh, house, which I'm in now with, with half an acre, an acre of ground, swimming pool, all that stuff, to a one-bedroom apartment? Without a doubt, I could do that. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not, I'm not scared of you losing material things. I'm just scared of losing everything. So I've got no house or flat or apartment to go back to. That's what scares me. Let's uh, let's go back to um, the person who's sitting at home and thinking about his next drink, and thinking about his next fix, thinking about the next smoke that he's going to have, and think about the things that they're addicted to. You work in a, in a in a recovery center. What are some of the things that you do to make a difference in people's lives? Well, if you're at home suffering and you're about to take a drink that you don't want to take or a drug that you want to take, my biggest advice to you is get some get start communication with somebody, start dialogue. You know, I'm not asking you to call a treatment center or call a doctor. Just start dialogue with somebody, your best friend, uh, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister. Just go, hey. You know, I just want to talk to you about this because here's here's the bottom line. If you have to ask somebody or tell somebody, I think I've got a problem. What do you think? You probably have. And that I would rather somebody get help who doesn't have alcoholism 
then do what I did and left it too late because there is a line we cross over from heavy drinking to drinking alcoholically. And once we cross that line, it's very, very difficult to come back from that. And if I would have caught this years ago, I wouldn't have gone down to the depths that I had to go down to. So communication is very, very big. And, uh, you know, one of my biggest drives today is getting alcoholism and addiction out of the closet into the mainstream media and go, hey, guys, you know, this isn't something to be embarrassed about. Now, having said that, we've worked with some very, very huge A-list movie stars and uh, music uh, guys, and they and they don't want to come out. They go, hey, I've got well. I'm, I don't want this in the papers. And, you know, we ask them, well, it was so good if you came out and said, look at me, look at me now. But people are still afraid that they're going to get judged, and they will. I mean, a lot of people judge me, still do judge me, and that's just society as a whole. But, again, when you've gone back to people stepping over you in the street, looking down at you in disgust to where I am today, you know, life life's takes on a complete new meaning to me. And, and coming out, coming out is a coming out is a is a, is a big thing. It's 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 a it's a huge step in a, anyone's journey. Um, myself coming out as as a as a, gay, a queer person in in Kenya, in a, in a country that still criminalizes same sex relations, was huge. So uh, coming out as someone who's going through um, a recovery or an addiction or, you know, that it, it rings, it rings true to me. Um, but let's, let's put you into, into that space where you were coming out. At what point, uh, how old were you when you said those words out loud that, hey, I'm an alcoholic? Probably around... 21 22 maybe when i fully conceded to the fact that i was most people have been telling me before that but i didn't believe it myself because what happened is I, everybody including myself has this idea of what an alcoholic should look like so mm. what's a standing on the corner with a brown paper bag with a bunch of guys with their hands around a fire freezing cold and drinking uh, whiskey all night well no nothing like that I was a functioning member of society. I'd gone to Oxford University. I was very educated, and I was earning probably half a million dollars a year. I mean, that, surely that's not an alcoholic. How, how could that be an alcoholic? So that, that was one of the problems we faced, was that nobody knew what, what we were looking at. So I, I, when I do presentations, when I do corporate events, I always have a PowerPoint slide, and it shows – the typical alcoholic image, what you think, which is a guy is a tramp, vagrant, you know, and he stood there with his, with his, his all his t uh, clothes torn, his long beard, and next to him is a businesswoman, and she's all smart with a briefcase. And I ask the audience, which is the alcoholic, and they always choose the guy on the left, and I go, no, they both are. It's just that the guy, the woman on the right, has not gone as far down, but they both suffer from the same disease, and they are shocked, absolutely. To go, well, wow, you know, do I know any alcoholics? And my answer is always the same. Everybody knows somebody. And if you don't, it's probably you. Everybody knows somebody. And if you don't, it's probably you. That's, that's, that's quite something. Um, so from that journey at 21, you, you, you said these words out loud. But was there a, an, an instant in time that made... 
a difference in your life that made you, what was the turning point for you? My, my turning point is, is when I was on the streets for 14 months. Uh, I, dro- I remember dropping down to my hands and wee- knees one night. It was probably 2.30 in the morning, Monday morning, Sunday night. It was pouring How old down. Were you again? Say again, sorry. How old were you? I was about 28 at the time. Okay. <clears throat> and I dropped down. I'd been on the streets for a year. I had no shoes on my feet. Somebody stole them the night before when I was drunk. And I just started to cry. I was done. On my hands and knees, I looked up to the sky and I said, if there's a God up there, I can't do this on my own anymore. And 30 seconds later, a guy went around the corner and he had a Bible in his hand and he asked, oh, I want help. Now, he'd missed his last bus home from a Bible study, so he had to walk. If he hadn't missed his last bus home, he wouldn't come across me. And if he hadn't come across me there, I'd be dead by now. There is no doubt about that. But he took me back to his house and he said I could stay there until I got on my feet. And and that's what happened. The start of my journey was right there. And it seemed to me that when I asked for God's help, he delivered. But that was my realization right there, that that was a, some kind of spiritual awakening. And it was time to move on. Because I got to the point, Anthony, where I, I kept saying to I can't kill myself. I mean, I was literally jumping in front of the train tracks and people would drag me off. Jumping in front of buses and people would drag me off. You know, going to the top of skyscrapers, ready to jump off, downed a bottle of vodka and fell backwards instead of forward. I mean, it was comical. You know, it got to the point where every time I'd wake up and go, oh, not again. You know, I cut my wrist one one, one day in somebody's apartment and the blood hit the roof, you know, uh, that bad that the the neighbor came in and went, what was, burst the door down. He's like, I knew something was wrong. And they got to me just in time before I bled out. I mean, it was just comical. So the, the time on the street was was definitely my turning point. When I, I didn't know then. I knew something was happening, uh, but I tried to live in the moment. Like when I was in the guy's house with him, I just tried to make the most of that. Then when I moved up into like a like a sober living complex, I made mm-hmm. the most of that. And I, I laughed and we joked and I just made the most of everything. And then it seems like before I know what day it is, I've woke up in America in this big house going, what the hell just happened? It's been a journey and a half, but I, I, I don't know. It just seems like a blur. I mean, as you're saying it, I, I can, I can see the blur. But right, um, <clears throat> I can actually see it. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm thinking about people who have not got to that point, who have not got to that point where they're living in the streets. They are, um, they um, in, in at, at the point where they are ready to take their own lives. But they know they because you said you knew at twenty one. It was at twenty eight that you got to the point where your turning your your turning point was. But people who are at that at at the brink of that that realization, mm-hmm. hey, I am an addict. I am addicted to alcohol. I'm addicted to sex. I'm addicted to drugs. I'm addicted to something. To those people, what would you say? The thing you have to ask yourself is, first of all, that alcoholism is the only self-diagnosed illness in the world. Ten DUIs do not make you an alcoholic. I want to make that clear for the guys listening. And one of the qualifiers, if you think you've got a problem or you're worried about something, can you go into a bar and take a drink and then leave and probably don't drink for three months? You know, when you take the first drink, can you stop? When you take the first drug, can you stop? Let's say one or two and go home. If you can't, then you need to speak to somebody and dialogue is the only way because nobody's talking about this as much as they should be talking about it. And don't think 
that you something wrong with you. Don't think that, you know, you're crazy or nobody will understand or, oh my goodness, if you find out I'm a drug addict. It's like there are more people than you know take drugs, recreational drugs. They've probably, you know, you know, three quarters of your friends that do without you even knowing about it. So we've got to get this out of the closet and realize that people use drugs and drink on a daily basis as part of life. But there is a point where the human human mind goes across that invisible line especially if you have the alcoholic brain and you know, nine times out of 10, there's no coming back from it. So it's just, mm. it's just being sensible. If your life's going to crap, if your life's not as good as you thought it was and you find yourself in the bar every night or even worse isolation in your apartment somewhere thinking you'll do it tomorrow, you do it tomorrow. That's the time to start thinking seriously about what do you want out of life? Because there is recovery after drug addiction and alcoholism. There's fantastic recovery. I'm I'm living proof there is. Yeah, and I want us to talk about the recovery. Uh, but before we get there, I wanted to ask you, what are the signs? There's a couple of signs. If you're if your parents and you're looking for children, look for these. Look for unkempt. Look for isolation. Look for missing school. Look for not coming down for uh, breakfast or lunch or the family weekly dinner get together. Uh, look for unshaven. All this stuff you need to look for, especially the isolation, they could be signs. Now, a lot of people say to me, well, what should I do? Should I have a look in the bedroom when they're at school? Hell yeah, go in there. You know, you might just save his life if you think if you think there's a drug and alcohol problem. And that's mm-hmm. what I tell everybody. And it's the same for adults. If the, you know, if if you if you know someone's acting differently, if you can smell alcohol, if if they're being more outward and they're usually inward then that's a sign uh lateness tardiness all this stuff you just need to look at it and go hey i wonder if i could help this guy i wonder if they've got a problem and again going back to i would rather somebody approach someone and go hey can i help at all do you have anything wrong i mean if you are you drinking too much are you okay rather than just leave it and leave it and leave it thinking i'm not going to get involved with that because if i ask my son he's gonna you know we won't be speaking for a few weeks and then him die of alcoholism three years later Aside from parents and and children, what signs should people look for in themselves? Well, again, there's there's a couple of signs. You know, it's not the quantity we drink, so I need to get that out of the way, guys. You know, I know people drink more than me. So if you're drinking a lot and still coping, no hangovers, just having a couple of glasses of wine at nighttime, a weekend going crazy, and you can still get up for work, I don't think you've got a problem. You might be a heavy drinker, you might be, you know, a party drinker. But if you find you're drinking every day, that's that's something you need to look in yourself and go, hey, am I performing 100% of what I said I would? Am I, am I getting the results in from school? Am I hitting that promotion at work? Do I have a girlfriend, boyfriend? You know, do I have a car? All these things that might affect you because of alcoholism, you need to look at. Alcoholics love to stay stationary. They stay stagnant. They don't like to move on. They make excuses. So most people that I know have a plan for the next two years, three years. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're on your way using it, great. If you're not and you find out that you haven't got that girlfriend or the wife's left you or the girlfriend's left you, then, then you might need to lock in with and go, what's going on? And then try coming off for a year. I'm not going to drink for a year. We'll see how it goes. And while I'm not drinking, I'm going to get that promotion, buy that new car and get that girlfriend. And if you can stay off from the year, good for you. You have not got a problem. But if you find yourself at the liquor store or off license for three days after you've made that promise to yourself, that, mm-hmm. that's a huge red flag right there. That's a red flag. And 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 that applies to 
many of the other addictions. Yes, I, w- I would say all of them. Yeah, I mean, going to the gym. You know, if you think you're going to the gym too much, you start getting injuries. The family going, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, you're there every day. You need to look at it as well because whether you're away drinking yourself to death or working in a gym to death, you're not there for the family. You're missing. You're not psychologically there. It's the same effect on the family. A family illness, whether someone has got an addiction to alcohol or whether someone's got an addiction to dieting and, and the gym, are totally the same for them. The psychological mm-hmm. damage and the abandonment to the family are the same no matter what the substance is. So we need to, again, we need to look at that. Am I going to the gym too much? Am I always measuring stuff out? Is it getting too crazy? Is my life revolved around it? And once your life starts revolving around it, it's time to, again, look inward and go, hey, do I have a problem here? That is true. And 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 as you said, the gym, I just thought of you um, in your on your first day at the gym and, and not, not knowing what to do. I want to talk about recovery and, and what recovery has been for you and what recovery should be for other people. Or um, is, is, there, is, there, is there something about recovery that should be the same? Let, let's talk about recovery in general. Well, recovery should be kind of the same for everybody else. You should be living life to the full. You know, you should be doing things you never dreamt of doing. The thing is with me is I've played with some real big names, as we all know, and I've had some amazing times when I'm drinking and drugging, Uh, you know, some amazing times with some crazy stuff that nobody else would do. Uh, You know, if life's not better than that when you're in recovery, then you're not doing it right because it has to be. You know, recovery has to feel good. It has to look good, you know, and you have to start getting up out of bed in the morning and getting stuff done. And, and you find that most people in recovery make fantastic employees. They make mm-hmm. fantastic husbands and fathers and, and wives and mothers. There's just a new take on life. If you're not getting up every morning, you know, and smiling to yourself saying, hey, today's going to be a great day, then you need to really look at yourself and go, hey, is this recovery thing working for me? Because I see all these guys happy. Now, does that mean I've got to be happy every day? No, I I don't have bad days. I have better days than others. There's sometimes when I don't want to get out of bed because I'm not depressed. We have those days. Everybody I know has those days. But apart from that, I've got a saying that we have over here that I made up some years ago, and that was stop dreaming and living and start living the dream. What's your dream? Are you living it today? I don't care if you're in a one-bedroom apartment and you sweep the roads for a living. Is that your dream today? And if it is, good job. That's how recovery is supposed to work. Because I came over here and people laughed at me. I said I wanted to be on national TV. They laughed. I said Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a household name. They laughed. You know, you can't do that. You're English. You can't just come over here and be on TV, you know. And I've done everything I set out to do and lots more. And I find out when I speak to people in recovery, they're doing the same. They're doing things they've never done. What, let's go parachuting, what someone said the other day. Why? We're in recovery. Let's just go for it and have a laugh. Good. That's the stuff you just should be doing. Now, you, you said, I, I, I love that line, I have better days than others. What do you do to make your days better? I, I, I have a, a, a kind of a strict routine because uh, my, my uh, wife, who's also the office manager and director of operations, she runs my day. We found out that personal assistants don't last that long. So she runs my day. So getting up in the morning, having a structured day is very important for me. And just being able to laugh going through the day, have fun. You know, we don't do really long hours, but we do have fun. And I've found uh, 
my wife's kind of my best friend and 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 my my life partner and you know we we have just we found each other because we both wanted to find somebody we could spend the rest of our lives with and just have fun and don't get stuck in the you know the same old routine well this is how it's supposed to be or this is how marriage is supposed to be or says who who are these guys making these rules up throw them away make your own rules up you know well it's just the way it, no it's not just the way it is stop get, get out of that rut you know, start doing stuff that you've never done before. Start doing crazy stuff. And you'll find out that life just takes on a new meaning because that's what life's all about. It, but listen, I went to bed when I was 17. I woke up yesterday. I was 59. That's how quick life goes. And you have to do everything you can do. And don't don't take a back seat with nothing. When I tell people the stuff I've done, most people don't believe me. They go, that's impossible. You can't have done all that. That's because I'm sat outside school one day and an old man sat next to me on the bench and he told me, he said, son, do everything you can. Don't turn anything down. Go for the stars and don't look back. And that's I do that all the time. I used to do it all the time. I'm getting a bit <clears throat> old now where I don't like to go out of the house after five o'clock. But, <laughs> you know, this is the stuff I did because he t- it all stuck in my mind. You know, why, why should I sit back? Why should I say no? You know, go for it. I mean, just pick up and go for it. And that's been my my thing all the time. Is like I never do things by half. They're either crazily amazing or I move on to the next subject because I get bored. Don't don't turn down anything. That's that's quite brilliant. And 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 just as we wrap up, I'm 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 gonna ask you, because the, the point of this podcast is really to to start conversations, the difficult conversations that people are afraid of having because of the stigma that exists around mental health, um, around anything to do with mental health, around addiction, around depression, around all these things. What is your advice to people going through mental health issues, to people going through depression, to people going through addiction issues? What is your advice to them? Again, going back to dialogue, start talking to somebody. Believe me, guys, no, nothing lasts forever, okay? So I've been the, the, the depressed of the depressed or bipolar or whatever you want to call it today. I've been there, but it doesn't last forever. There's always a way out. Tomorrow could be differently. It all depends the way you think. So is tomorrow a different day? Not really. It's the same day. Are you thinking about it different? Well, maybe that's a start straight away. You know, no matter how far down you are, no matter how depressed you are, there's always a way. Do not do something crazy like I tried to do, you know, for like a permanent solution, I thought it was, for a temporary problem. That's what it is. It's a permanent solution for a temporary problem. Don't think that that's it. It's all over. I've got to finish it. No, life gets better. You're going through this for a reason. You're going through this because somebody's teaching you something so that later on in life, you can teach somebody else. It's all a lesson. It's all a journey. One of the reasons why I went on the streets is, you know, <clears throat> I hate it at the time, but now I look back and people go, yeah, doctor, what do you know? You've never been homeless. Well, actually I have, you know, well, you've never lost your kids. Well, actually I have. And it's all this stuff that was learning. So look at it as a learning tool, feel your body, feel the way you are. And know, guys, you know, if you, if you don't think you're good enough, if you, if you're there in a depressive state, cause you have no self-esteem and don't think you're worthy, I want to apologize to you. Because somebody's put that there. That's not the truth. The truth is that you are capable of doing absolutely anything you want. And I used to say this to some people and they go, oh, yeah, but I couldn't be president of the United States. Well, I beg to differ today. 
We have a businessman running the country. You can do anything you want. There are no rules. Who's making these rules up? Well, I can't go to Oxford. What Said who? Well, I can't be CEO of it. Says who? You can be anything you want to. If you can visualize it in your mind, you can hold it in your hand. I guarantee you. If you can visualize it in your mind, you can hold it in your hand. That's a brilliant way to end this, this absolutely amazing conversation. And thank you so much for taking your time uh, to speak to me. And if anyone wants to buy the book, it's on Amazon. It's called Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. Get the book, read it. This has been Rob Kelly. Thank you so much, Rob, for Dr. Rob Kelly for taking your time to talk to me on this podcast. Absolutely, Anthony. Always a pleasure. And we will speak again soon. You know that and I know that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Padded Cell. Do visit the website paddedcellpodcast.life where you will find links to all of the podcast's social media Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and more information about this and other episodes of Padded Cell. If you have any questions, comments, or simply wish to reach out, feel free to send a message on the contact tab. For the month of October, Black History Month, I shall have a series of conversations about race and mental health. Join me again next week for the first of these conversations. As always, remember to be kind to yourself and others.